it would be better to euthanize a week too early than a day too late when a pet has really suffered. Or there's a crisis at two in the morning and they're rushing to an emergency room and it's not the nice, quiet at home with the family all around that they had hoped for. From Hamster Wheel Publishing, this is Blunt Dissection. I'm Dave Nichol. On today's show, I'm delighted to welcome one of the most well-read, insanely qualified and awesome people in veterinary medicine you've most likely never heard of, Dr. Sheila Robertson. Sheila grew up in Scotland and graduated from Glasgow University. Her career in veterinary medicine spans more than three decades and encompasses numerous roles and qualifications, acquiring four diplomas and one PhD while teaching at schools in the United Kingdom, Canada and the United States. Sheila has held many prestigious positions, including work with AVMA, plus she's a two-time member of the American Animal Hospital Association and American Association of Feline Practitioners Pain Management Task Force, try saying that after you've had a glass of wine, and has served with the president, or, or as the president, not with the president, of the American College of Veterinary Anesthesia and Analgesia. That's saying nothing of the massive list of publications she's written or contributed to, including two books. It's safe to say she is a titan in the world of anesthesia and pain management. In 2017, Sheila joined Lap of Love Veterinary Hospice as the Senior Medical Director, where rumour has it that the company had to reduce their font size by two points to come anywhere near getting all of the alphabet of letters onto her business card. I'm not going to read it out here, but in the show notes you can see for yourself, she has so many letters after her name, it is like somebody got very loose with a can of alphabeti spaghetti. Now, just before we jump into the episode, I wanted to drop a quick word from our show sponsor, which today is the VetEx Graduate Mentoring Community. If you are a practice owner and want to offer your new vets a greater level of support so they grow faster and stay longer with your practice, then please jump onto my website, drdavenickel.com forward slash vetex dash grad and learn how we are helping graduates across the world thrive in practices just like yours. The class is now open for global entry, so please check it out. Now back to the episode. This episode ranks as one of my favourites. I know I say that a lot and I genuinely mean it each time. The reason being that Sheila is such a warm, friendly and humble person with an awesome sense of humour. It really was a joy to listen and learn from her. The time just flew past. So without further ado, I present to you my interview with the amazing Dr. Sheila Robertson. So I'm very excited today. Welcome to today's podcast, everybody. I am joined here by a very special guest, uh, Dr. Sheila Robertson. A little pre-warning, a couple of things. Number one, the crinkly, nice acoustic noise that you can hear there. And the photo that's promoting this podcast, we are holding Tunnock's milk chocolate caramel wafer biscuits, which Sheila has brought as a gift. <laughs> future note, or note to future podcast guests, gifts are very well appreciated here. And it's a slightly ironic gift on account of the fact that I'm vegan and Sheila's gluten intolerant, so neither <laughs> of us can actually eat the things. But it's a it's a blast from the past, and we are both Scottish. So another disclaimer uh, or another pre-warning is that you're going to hear two, I was safe to say, Sheila, slightly confused-sounding Scottish accents from travel around the globe. Would that be fair? That would be absolutely true. <laughs> when I go back to Britain, everyone says, oh, you're from America. And then when I'm in America, they're like, you're so Scottish. <laughs> 
Yeah, I get the same thing, but it's confused with Australia now. And then spending time with lots of Americans always makes me do bad things like up talk, which I get mocked endlessly for. And, and I can't say the word Twitter anymore without saying Twitter. <laughs> and the T's become D's. Yep. Just yep. terribly embarrassing. Yeah, and the students make fun of me when I still talk about the trachea instead of the trachea in America. <laughs> of um, course. But I try not give up completely on my Queen's English or my Scots upbringing. Very good. So hopefully you can follow what we're saying. And if you can't, and at the very least, it will sound acoustically or audio wonderful, I think, to have two lilting accents, I hope. So Sheila and I are both graduates of Glasgow University Vet School. That's always a lot of fun to have another Glasgow grad on. And I'm going to name check another very cool Glasgow vet student who is in her final year doing her studies and amazing the athletics world in the UK. So congratulations, Laura Muir. Uh, yay, soon, Laura. La, yay, Laura. Go Glasgow. Go Laura. Who just won a silver medal at the World Champs Athletics in Birmingham and she had to get a seven hour taxi ride to make it through the snow and the ice that is plaguing the UK at the moment to go down there and win a silver medal. So we're all super proud of you, Laura. That's amazing. And um, yeah, you're, you're really going to have to come on the podcast. So uh, we've got a lot of love for you here. Now, welcome to the podcast, Sheila. That was the longest sort of intro spiel ever. This could be a long one. <laughs> Two Glaswegians. Oh, you're not quite a Glaswegian, are you? Um, <laughs> he uh, says mischievously. Can, yeah, am I going to have to admit I'm on the spot now? I was actually born in England, <gasps> but... Two Scottish parents, and we moved to Dundee, Scotland, when I was uh, where my mum lives. Just a wee baby. Uh-huh. Yep. Yeah, and then Falkirk. So I'm truly Scottish. Yeah, moved around. All right. So, a little sidebar question to start with, because we we share that we're Glasgow graduates, and we share we're Scottish, and we also share a love of Mini Coopers. So tell me about your love of Mini Coopers. I, we, I promise you we'll get <laughs> onto some serious questions at yeah. some point. Yeah, no, I have always, always, always wanted to own a Mini Cooper. And um, I finally got one 11 years ago. Uh, had it, you know, kind of ordered it online and you can watch it being built, you know, from America. And you can follow it, you know, and you choose all the bits and then you can see it getting put on the boat, sort of. And then it arrives and then you go pick it up. So I have a bright red Mini Cooper. Didn't get the S because oh, I, I knew... I was going to ask that. I didn't get the S because I knew I'd get a speeding ticket with the S. So it's a beautiful, bright red Mini Cooper that I absolutely love. And their customer service is incredible. They are. It's just my favorite. Cars were just forgetting from A to B. And when I got that Mini Cooper, it's like she makes me happy when I get in her. It's like riding a, a, almost like in a go-kart, isn't it? The ride experience is just so different. They're super, everyone goes, oh, it's so small and it's so this and, you know, and everybody in America has an SUV or something. And I'm like, but you know, if you look at the safety data, it's one of the safest cars. And then at least this audience might know, I tell people, but it's just like the TARDIS. And they're like, the what? And I go, well, you know, it's got a lot more room inside. Like I can like get a dog, a bike and all the shopping in the back of a Mini Cooper. And they're like, and I said, so it's just like the TARDIS. And then you have to explain Doctor Who and the TARDIS and everything. But that's what a Mini Cooper is really like. I have only, you know, really been introduced to you very recently, but already I know we're going to be great friends because we're like Mini Coopers and we're also Doctor Who nuts as well or nerds. So we're going to get on great. Okay. At some point we should talk about veterinary medicine, I suppose, but I feel like we could talk about this forever. Um, so Sheila, 
you have got without a shadow of a doubt. Like, actually, it's an embarrassment of letters after your name. Like, could you leave some of the alphabet for the rest of us? Like, that is a lot. That's a long list of letters after your name, which does reflect a really interesting pathway as you've gone through your career. So, and forgive me, I'll probably jump around all over the place in normal, slightly haphazard fashion. But you started out life in, and similar to myself, with ambitions to be a surgeon yes. at Glasgow. And you trained under fellow podcasts alumni and Glasgow graduate Stuart Carmichael. Yes. So I'll ask you to spill beans on him in a second, but <laughs> tell me about, because you didn't hang out in that discipline surgery very long no. before you, you changed tack. So perhaps take us back in time and tell us, you know, what pushed you down that path and then tell us about the, uh, the distance, the, the change in direction. Yeah. So I had the ambition to be a surgeon Probably in about final year, I remember being given a lot of latitude and actually having brave people like Stuart and other house surgeons and faculty that let me actually do more surgery than I thought I maybe should be doing, but that was great. And I thought, yeah, I could be a surgeon and uh, that's what I was going to be. So after I graduated, I was accepted at Bristol University as a surgery house officer, the way they called them in those days. And I uh, spent the summer in a mixed animal practice in Warrington and then started my surgery training. And in those days, you did all species. So you were doing horses, dogs, cats, everything. And the surgeons specialized more in a body system than a, like, so anyone that did orthopedic surgery did horse orthopedics, but they did dog fractures and things as well. And I loved my year at Bristol doing surgery, but during that rotation or during that year, they have you rotate through radiology and anesthesia. And I was doing my six weeks on anesthesia. And I used to keep saying to the anesthesiologist or the anesthetist at that time, Dr. Jeremy Luke, pretty well-known Royal College person. And I kept saying to him, I said, so we're going to give this injectable drug and then we're going to make them breathe this gas and they stay asleep and they wake up and usually that's how it goes. And we really, I keep on asking you, and he couldn't tell me how these drugs worked. But when I was on my surgery rotations, you ask a surgeon a question, and they know every answer, right? right. So I thought that if I specialized in anesthesia, I would figure out, like, we can give an injection of whatever drug it is, we can have them breathe a drug, and I would figure out how these drugs worked in 36 years later. <laughs> Did we, you find the answers? Well, I know how to use them. I know how to use them. I know how to use them well and safely. But it's still one of the big mysteries of the world, as far as I'm concerned, is how anesthetics actually do what they do and are reversible and the animals come out the other end, and humans, of course. But I just thought it was fascinating and I thought that I might be able to figure it out. But uh, I've still enjoyed my career in anesthesia. And then a part of that was doing surgery. Huge part of my concern was when my patients woke up and we had done things that were painful. And so I was very, very interested in pain management, which kind of fell between the cracks. Was it a surgeon's job or an anesthetist's job? And so I really liked that part and it has become everybody's job. But anesthesia did a lot of the pain management. And so it was a really, really good fit for me. Mm. And when you, you talk about it, it's fascinating because I've always wondered about that sort of the interaction of the molecules and, and the, the level of consciousness. Did you have any thoughts or insights into, well, let's start with the induction of unconsciousness. 
maybe that's a, a very metaphysical sort of mm-hmm. existential question for us to get into. But if that's a silly question or that's really too big of a question, I'm really interested in our audience that are listening now, a lot are in general practitioners, leaders in practices. What have you learned about anesthesia that is, you think, the most fundamental things that, that we as practice owners can put to use in our practices, in our everyday practices to improve safety? And I've got a, a slight part B to a question. You know, there was research published, I think it was French data that showed this horrific anesthesia mortality rate of, you know, one in 400 patients, which, you know, over 20 years of my career, and I would, I would estimate well over 15,000 anesthetics, didn't lose a single animal, you know. And a lot of that, I think, was luck. But clearly, 400, one in 400 seems ridiculous. Yeah. And yes. an unacceptable mortality rate. Are there any more recent or more reliable figures to, you know, I think a lot of the times when we talk about anesthetics, that's one of a pet owner's biggest fears. So what data, what numbers can we quote as general practitioners on the safety levels in veterinary anesthesia? And what tips would you have for us to improve our anesthesia safety? What are the common things you see Mm -hmm. done badly? So probably the biggest study that's ever been done, and it changed how I practiced anesthesia, was Dave Broadbelt from, um, well, he was at London at the time, and he did this huge study, prospective, so it was very, very good data. And by the end of his PhD, he had collected, I think it's 98,000 anesthesia records on dogs, over 80,000 in cats, and then he also looked at birds and rabbits and so on, and he looked at the overall mortality rate based on whether they were designated to be healthy or sick at the time of going into anesthesia. And the definition was that the death was related purely to anesthesia, not, you know, a major artery rupture. It wasn't due to surgery. Right. Um, it really was a true anesthetic death within 48 hours of being sedated. That yep. was the analogy. And so he found, because he had so much data and the way he did the statistics, he was able to actually tweak out, like, risk factors. And so... We now we do know, and it's been confirmed in another recent study that I'll talk about, that cats have a much higher chance of dying um, related to anesthesia than dogs. And it's always, every study it comes out about twice the chance of a dog. So I think that's pretty, you know, significant data. And he was looking, I mean, he's got data showing that the mortality has come down a lot in the last 20 years. And that's partly due to newer anesthetics and anesthetic drugs, but more to do with specialized training and monitoring. Because if you detect a problem before it's too late, so, you know, a warning system. So, like, he showed that if you just put a pulse oximeter on a cat, the chances of it dying are significantly decreased because you get a warning that something's not going well. Yep. But there's data just came out from a huge um, shelter doing spays and neuters in Florida, in Tampa, where you have surgeons, that's what they do all day. They do 50, the same surgery. These are young, healthy animals, elective procedures. And these surgeons are doing quick procedures. And they're fantastic because that's the procedures they do. And the mortality rate in that study was 0.003%, which is 
almost getting close to human mortality. But even in that study, they showed that cats are still the ones that have the problem. And between males and females, more females, because it takes longer to do a spay than a castration. That makes sense, yeah. But when you have a really slick team that is good at doing what they do, the mortality rate is very low. But I think... One of the key things that we learned from the Broadbelt, the SEPSAF study is what it was called, is that there's human error involved. So there's probably no one listening to this podcast that hasn't accidentally left a pop-off valve closed. Yep. And so now we have ways of having making sure that never happens, like just built-in safety equipment. And then I think taking the human data on checklists and moving it into the veterinary world that you have checklists about what everyone's doing, who everybody is, and what the plan is, has made a huge difference. And we have data in veterinary medicine that if you actually read out the name of the drug that you're about to inject and you say, I am injecting this IV, medication error goes down by 50%. That's huge. Yeah. So checklists, um, which started with Atal Gawandi, well, that's the surgeon, a, I was going to uh, ask is just brilliant. Him. So... And I embraced them. And although people feel like they're being challenged with them, like, you know, I know what I'm doing. I don't need a checklist. And that people are afraid they would make things take longer. My experience was that we made fewer mistakes and people were empowered by using them and they work. What was the mortality rate from the SEPSAF study? SEPSAF study, um, trying to think off the top of my head, overall mortality in... They separated it into healthy and sick. And so the healthy cats, it was 0.11%. And dogs, it was 0.05%. So that was the intriguing thing was apparently healthy cats, everyone, you know, did their pre-op evaluation, but the healthy cats were twice as likely to die. Now, when they were categorized as like ASA, you know, like a status of being sick, Yep. It was the same for dogs and cats, and obviously higher than healthy animals. Do you have any opinions on why? Yeah, well, it changed how I practiced because the Broadbelt study tweaked out. So they found that intubation for short periods can actually be detrimental to cats. And one of the commonest problems cats have in recovery is airway obstruction. So that made us think about, do we always have to put an endotracheal not tracheal tube, a tracheal tube. Tracheal tube, in, right. Into the cat. So for a cat castration. Uh, for a cat castration. For so I, minutes. doing a lot of shelter work over the years, I would never intubate, you know, a five-minute procedure in, in, a pedi- in a pediatric. So they get auctioned by, by right, mask. Right, So that was one of the things. I mean, they're a good thing to do for a long procedure, but then they have now developed superglottic airway devices that, secure an airway in a cat, but don't involve actually going down the trachea. So I think that's a really good development that came out of, you know, us knowing that intubation was a problem. And then the one that left all of us scratching our heads was the fact that giving fluids was a risk factor. And so we're all kind of dismissing it initially saying, well, probably it was all the sicker cats that got the fluids, but his statistics was so, you know, the way they were able to do it fluids were a risk factor. And then you start thinking about it and you go, well, 
where do we get the data for like every animal should get these high fluid rates during anesthesia? They've always right. been too high yep. and based on no fact and no right, so good just evidence. Whack them on five mils per kilo well, per hour or initially higher. it used to be ten. Right, and, that, yep. and I was trained on that when I was in Glasgow, yep. and yep. then we went to five. Yep, and then cats, even though. That's too high, right? Well, the other thing is, like, no one was thinking, like, the blood volume based on their body weight of a cat is a lot lower than a dog. So why were we ever treating dogs and cats the, the same. same? And then the other thing is, now that we know a lot more about cardiology in cats, at the moment, the statistics are suggesting that one in five cats has underlying HCM. So if you put the combination of too much fluid that they don't really need for a, if they're healthy to start with, with a heart that maybe can't cope with a fluid load, then I think you've got what might be the answer. And so it's going to be fascinating if we can redo this study now that we've changed our protocols, like AHA, the American Animal Hospital Association, recommended much lower fluid rates for dogs and cats. Yep. AFP backed that up. So that would be really nice. And if people are now not feeling compelled, like it used to be the golden rule, you had to have a secure airway and then getting more comfortable with thinking for a short procedure in a cat, maybe not, or a tiny cat. So no. two, two questions there. What is the current guideline on fluid rates? Because I hear lots of people saying lots of different things about that. Yep. And with your string of letters, I know who I'm going to believe in, be believing. <laughs> uh, and how long... When you say a short procedure time, is there an indication on how long? What is short? So let's talk with the intubation being a risk factor for short cases. So they, it looked like under 30 minutes. And I think it's because, well, first of all, some people aren't very gentle intubating cats. Yeah. And I think you just need to be patient. If they're sitting there with their vocal cords closed, you can't make a cat open you just have to sit there wait 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 and yes. you know and be they've got to be you know you don't want to be hitting a moving target they need to be asleep not reacting some people use lidocaine to stop the spasm and i think you know if you do a very short procedure and then pull the tube you then have a cat not able to protect his airway yes and if, when people used to use that really high powered spray yeah we know that that was a too high a dose and b the force coming out of the end of that tip could actually cause some mucosal damage and the cat's airway is so small anyway. So I think we looked at a lot of different reasons. So that, you know, I think, so if they're under 30 minutes, I prefer not to intubate them. Or I'm now using the supraglottic airway device. The, it's called a V-gel. Yes. Um, they make them for rabbits and cats. That's right. And um, it certainly transformed doing rabbits because <laughs> yep. they were hard. And yes. then for the fluid rates, the recommended healthy animal coming in, having surgery. Again, if it's a, if it's a two to five minute castration, they're not going to get fluids if it's me doing it, right? They're not, you know. But they recommend five mils per kilo for the first hour in dogs. Yep. And three mils per kilo for the first hour in cats. And then you estimate and look at what's going on and then you start turning down by up to 25% each additional hour because if not the dogs well, the dog studies just show that if you go higher than that or run that for several hours the dog just comes out of surgery weighing the extra weight it's just the fluid you gave it and they kind of hang on to that for quite a while because of changes in you know diureasing and so on yep. and they actually showed those high fluid rates for orthopedic um, stifle surgery they got edema around the incision site which is never good 
Amazing. That's fascinating. Yeah. So, you know, we still don't have a lot of good evidence, but we do know that we should be given lower. Now, that's your routine cases, your emergency hemoabdomen, septic patient. That's a whole different story altogether. Yeah. Go with keeping the blood pressure and perfusion yep. up, right? Yep. Um, and, you know, and that doesn't always happen with a bolus of fluids. That's going to need some cardiovascular support and so on. So top three things that induce, uh, is there an 80-20 thing happening here in terms of, you know, what are the top common things? I know in my practice and with, with all the practices I've owned, this was the thing we focused on the most because impactful on the team if you lose an animal under anesthesia. Huge. Like it just crushes everyone. Huge. And so we would, we would keep an anest- a no-blame anesthetic record book and say, look, something goes wrong, we just write it up. We restricted the number of circuits. We minimized the number of circuits we had so the complexity of it was minimized. And we just got very good at doing the same thing over and over and over. But also then we'd review the book at the end of the month, assuming mm-hmm. there wasn't a you know, catastrophic or a really, like, we need to act now. And then we'd, we'd just tally up the common things. And then we'd either look to eliminate the problem from the system, like frequently it was the T-pieces with the bags that would twist and then you'd have a blown-up bag. Or there was, a, you know, a connector on a system that wasn't working well, um, or there was just a training issue. So, we, you know, we tagged up all the the critical connection points so with a big orange dot, so yep. you could very quickly see, okay, animal seems not to be breathing right. Okay, what's well, not connected? Why is it not getting oxygen? Something like that. And so we were able to spot our eighty twenties. Is there is there generally? You know, it's a very small sample size, but from your experience, you know, what are the the sort of 20% of things that cause 80% of the problems in anesthesia that we should all be looking out for? You picked up on a lot of them. I think that um, in most places, and certainly in, in a university setting that I've been in for a long time, we like to you know use a lot of different things. But I'll be honest, I think you need the simplicity so there aren't mistakes. Like, because the unfamiliar... Like is what causes the problems. Built-in relief valves so you don't get the blown-up bag. I mean, they cost like, you know, they're so inexpensive to add to your system. Um, the checklists, so that gets the human error part taken away using monitors. Um, my favorite monitor is a Doppler because I can hear it. You know, to me, that's music in the theater is the whoosh, whoosh. So I would put a Doppler on everything because we do know that people will respond to an audible sudden change. And it's not possible to be looking at the at a monitor all the time to see something, but you'll hear it. So pulse oxys and, and Dopplers for sure. I think the other huge thing that has changed over the years, but it's a still a big factor, is hypothermia. Yes. So hypothermia, there's nothing good about a pet getting cold during anesthesia, and it has far-reaching negative effects. Wait, it's not... You know, you can just list all the bad things about getting cold. I mean, it's an endless list. There's nothing good about letting them get cold. So we've got to work really hard, and we have. I would say in my anesthesia career, one of the biggest things that made a difference was the invention of the warm air blankets, yep. the, what we call the bear huggers or whatever you want to call them. Do you have a preference? So, you know, bear huggers, there's the thermal blankets it's, like hot dogs. Yep. Of all the gadgets and toys I ever bought in my hospital, the thing that everyone was the most pumped about, you know, like the, the endosurgery system, the laser, all the, all the stuff I was geeking out about, 
My nurses couldn't care less about it. In fact, they were annoyed every time I bought that because it was just more fiddly stuff that could break or, you know, oh God, Dave's going to bought some more stuff. But the thing they went absolutely nuts about were the hot dog warming blankets. Yep. And that changed everything. Do you have a preference over what system or is it just do warming whatever way? I mean, it depends on the situation you're in. And, you know, sometimes I'm doing you know, like a hundred and so kittens and puppies one day. So things like, you know, I use a lot of like um, fleece for those, you know, when not everybody can get, you know, they don't have the equipment, but you can use bubble pack. You can use, there's all sorts of things, but in a practice that's doing a lot of surgery, we've got the bear huggers, which some people like, but actually being able to put them over, you know, the surgeons need access to your animal a lot of the time. So the hot dogs have been wonderful. You know, the ultimate you know, face-to-face challenge of like combinations of the two versus one or the other. That's maybe not been, you know, really well um, done. And there's some really innovative stuff coming out now that there's um, a couple of studies being done in dogs now and published that if you infuse a certain type of amino acids during surgery, they're actually thermogenic and they generate heat. It's energy. It's like you're giving them energy and they maintain. That's the um, anesthesia equivalent of getting the meat sweats yeah. after a big steak. Right? Yeah, yeah. Which again is not a very yeah. vegan thing to yeah. say. but Yeah. So there's some innovative things, but yeah. And the other thing is knowing that the minute the animal enters the hospital, there's a chance for it to lose body heat. The minute you give it its um, sedative or pre-met, whatever, they start losing heat. You don't need to soak them in your... Um, surgical prep solution. Uh, it's not so much what you prep them with. It's like if you let them get soaking wet, then the evaporative heat losses are huge. So hypothermia, you know, it's like they bleed worse under anesthesia. Wound infections a big thing. They wake up in humans waking up from anesthesia. A lot of people complain more about being cold than they do about being painful because it's not a pleasant feeling. And then you start shivering. And if someone just operated on your abdomen and you're shivering and rigid, it's more painful. Um, You need a lot more oxygen, you get in trouble. So um, that nice, snug, warm feeling cocooned in warmth waking up is, I think our animals really benefit from it. If you're not, folks, listen up. If you're not using warming, that's a huge deal. It's huge. The other thing is, I mean, there's data in dogs and in cats. I mean, and in busy practices, time is money. And so there's data and it's a clear cutoff point that below a certain temperature, if a dog rolls out of the theater at a certain temperature, they showed that it can take, you know, 24 plus or minus 30 minutes to be extubated and sitting up. If they come out normothermic, you can get them extubated and sitting up within seven minutes. Right. So your day just runs more smoothly. Yeah. So you've got, while they're not able to be extubated and they're warming up slowly, you've got a person tied up with that animal. Whereas if you bring them out normothermic, that nurse or whoever can move on to the next thing. And, you know, because if you're cold, you don't metabolize your drugs, the inhalants are more soluble. So it's going to save you time. Plus the animals are going to feel much better and do much better. And the connection with wound infection, I think, is pretty clear in the human literature. And we know how long the surgeries are is a factor in in veterinary medicine. That is very interesting. I was not aware of that as a as a link. Yep. So there we go. Now you're speaking, and you you speak. And we'll come on to your 
work in a second, but one of your big passion topics, geriatric anesthesia. Mm -hmm. So let's not move off of anesthesia. This is great. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm learning so much. Like I, I don't care when on a podcast, I feel like I'm getting my CE in like one-on-one, -on -one, which is, which is fabulous. So geriatrics, obviously everything's a little bit harder. Again, can you give us your, your advice, your wisdom on how we minimize or reduce risk for the geriatric case? What things should we be changing? Yep. So I think uh, with my new job, I'm working now with Lap of Love. And so we have deal with older patients. But I've always been concerned about the, the geriatrics and the senior patients that used to come through my services for anesthesia, because a lot of them have problems. And the other thing is, I think as a profession, we've become very good at pediatric anesthesia, right? I think our success rate with spay and neuter in, in tiny, like, you know, what, one kilo kittens and puppies yep. is really, really good. And like, if you look at the human equivalent, you know, like in America, for example, I just looked up all the statistics. There's one pediatrician for every 800 children, but there's only one geriatrician for every 5,000 geriatric people in America. Wow. So clearly we're facing the same issue in veterinary medicine. Animals are living longer. People are willing to do more treatments. Preventative medicine is keeping them longer. So now these pets need to be anesthetized, like for their dental yep. or, you know, they've got a mass on their spleen, but the owner's going to go for it because, yep. you know, yep. they're going to do fine and they shouldn't be, you know, too old to get their teeth done. So with aging, even if you age well, your vital capacity or your reserve capacity in every organ decreases. And so that's going to affect anesthesia. You have less surface area in your lungs. Your lungs are a little bit stiffer. Your heart's a little bit stiffer. You lose muscle mass, you know, sarcopenia. So you're not, you might need a bit more help with breathing. Those dogs or cats need a little helped more. But the biggest thing for anesthesia is that brain mass and neurotransmitters decrease with time. And so in humans, they've known forever that the MAC, so how much isoflurane or sevoflurane you need to stay asleep, drops off every decade. And that data has been validated in dogs. I haven't seen it in cats yet, but it's been done for sevoflurane and isoflurane in dogs. And one was in beagles at age two, and they were in a longevity nutrition study, anesthetize them again when they're 10 or 12, and they need a lot less um, to keep them asleep. And so it's easy to overdose the older animals. And the other thing is they have a slower circulation time. So you want to inject a lot more slowly to let things get to the brain in the older pets. And then the other thing is just making sure, again, the hypothermia, because they have a different, they have less you know, they have muscle wastage, you know, the skinny old animals, so they can't generate as much heat. Um, they lose a lot of muscle mass. So even warming up, shivering is a bigger deal for them yeah. and they take longer. So that and the other problem when they're under anesthesia is think about how many of them actually have underlying osteoarthritis that you're probably already treating. Yep. And then you put them on a really hard uncomfortable surgical table and put them in a, in a position that they wouldn't awkward position. choose, yeah. right? Their elbows all stretched out. So often what I find or used to find before I thought about it was if they were in for an emergency hemoabdomen or something, their incision was fine the next day, but they were crippled. Right. Their back, their knees, their elbows hurt. 
So I'm, you know, a proponent of much better positioning, not tying animals down in crazy positions. Um, just like thinking about if that not was your stretching joint, stretching the lumbosacral joint, and these old yeah. dogs that well, and thing and yeah, and things like you know stretching their paws for yeah, stretching out yeah. the arms, and you know, my answer's always been like it's not you know tying them down that stops them moving. It should be the anesthesia that stops them moving. <laughs> um, that makes sense. So you know, why do we have to tie them down in these positions? And so I think you know, developing better, v, you know, how they're positioned, and you know, really forgiving foam, uh, memory foam type stuff. And, you know, even thinking about when you're doing a PU in a cat, you know, do you pull their legs forward if they have hippo age? You put their tail up and we know that that's really bad for their lumbosacral junction. So we've got to get creative in sort of like neutral positioning um, for all animals, but especially these geriatrics with their sore joints. And they may have to come off their non-steroidal, yeah. you know, a blocked cat or a acute, you know, hemangiosarcoma, hemoabdomen that's hypotensive is probably going to be taken off its non-steroidals for a couple of days. And so yep. we're in, we've got a problem there. Absolutely. Now the MAC, just come back for us that for a second. So, you know, standard operating practice in a lot of clinics is, you know, crank them onto two liters of oxygen and 2% uh, isoflurane. Mm -hmm. And so what does the MAC reduce down to, you know, let's say we're doing a 14 year old, dog it's a painful condition like a, a dental what should we be thinking what number should we be thinking for mac in so, these dogs? so we're talking about in the data that's published in dogs like it's at least a 25 percent drop right at least and obviously it's going to depend on what other drugs you have on board but what it really comes down to so 25 to 30 or higher percentage yep. lower on your vaporizer setting yep Otherwise, you're overdosing them yep. because they just don't have the neurotransmitters and the brain mass is, has gone down. So this all comes down to monitoring depth of anesthesia. So like your yep. nurses or whoever's running anesthesia, you know, what they'll find is that if they check the jaw tone and they check reflexes and so on, and they keep turning the vaporizer down in these older dogs, they're like still have a dog or a cat that's asleep but the vaporizer's not way up where it is for a young, you know, robunctious like Labrador that comes in for a neuter, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. and they just need to be checking the reflexes. And what they'll find is that, you know, as soon as they start being more paying attention to depth of anesthesia and jaw tone and so on, you'll find that the dogs breathe better, their pressure's better because you're using, basically you're giving them what they need and no more. And that's really the key to anesthesia is the monitoring. With your geriatrics, well, one thing I have an interest in dentistry and always had through my career and it always not bamboozled me. I mean, in the end, it was it was good, uh, good for me. It was bad for the pets. But, you know, we would see animals coming to our practices that were well known for dentistry that had seen other vets. And because they had a heart murmur mm -hmm. or because they were an old patient, they were written off for a dental procedure as too high risk and so left with with the problem but i want to just ask about the heart murmurs those animals that have you know, i did a lot of work with a rescue organization in sydney called pause for thoughts and they really did amazing things rescuing the most beat up old animals <laughs> they would find the ones that nobody else would touch they call them the crusties pull them out and the objective was to give these dogs three months being loved at the end of their life before they were euthanized and the lady that ran that wonderful lady called marika you started bringing dogs to me and I would look at them and go, 
oh my God, how messed up is this animal? But we'd work through their multiple morbidities, comorbidities, and we'd, we'd fix them. And almost all of them needed some form of dentistry, but they almost always had breast cancers because mm-hmm. they were all unneutered. And they had, a lot of them had heart murmurs. And we would do things that, you know, because it was effectively, it was a, a shelter medicine thing. So we would neuter them at the same time yeah. as do their dental and, and take their lumps off because we had to because there was no, no other option. The animals lived for an average of 18 months after that. <laughs> and they were all 14, 15 plus. They were really yeah. old. And they lived so well. It was such rewarding stuff. Yeah. But one of the things I hear over and over from clients coming to us from other practices is, oh, my vet said we wouldn't do it because there's a heart murmur. Yeah. Tell us about risk factors with cardiac disease, particularly thinking mitral valve disease here. Yeah. So just going back just to what you said, I think it's just so sad when someone decide or is given the advice or the owner says, I wouldn't want to risk anesthesia in my old pet because it's just its teeth. Bad, well, it's like obesity and probably bad dental health are the two main things that we're battling in veterinary medicine. Yes. In dogs and cats. And, Bad teeth is a huge welfare issue. First of all, they can be painful. Uh, you know, they might not want to eat. And the other thing is it's kind of a big deal for the human-animal bond because of the stink and the mess and everything. So to me, like, leaving bad teeth is such a welfare issue. Plus, then they could get bacteremic and then they can get all the other. So when you see a dog with an old dog with rotten teeth go through anesthesia, it's like suddenly they're three years younger in, you know, everything's great. So, you know, just the things we've talked about taking care with the older patient, but, you know, a heart murmur, you know, when I, when I first graduated, you know, we listened to hearts and we did a physical exam, you know, now a lot of the new graduates, they can, you know, do echoes and all this stuff. And, you know, we didn't have a lot, we, well, we really didn't do that. Yep. And a lot of people still can't do that, but I would never refuse to anesthetize an animal with a heart murmur just because I can't get cardiology to do a workup for me and give me an echo. Right. And the other thing, think about the heart murmur dogs that come in for an emergency, right? You're going to do them anyway, right? Right. So basically the hidden one, the one that's so silent though, is, is cats with HCM. Yeah. And we just know that we should stay away from high fluid rates and we want to do low stress and avoid, if we can, anything that makes our heart rate higher, like ketamine. Yep. So that'll keep you out of trouble. So with the dogs, I mean, a lot of it you can tell from how bad it is from like, can they still like walk around the block? Are they, you know, cough? If they're not doing any of those things, I'm thinking, well, you know, I'm going to do this animal and you're going to be careful with your fluids and only give, you know, you may go pretty low because you're doing a simple procedure and if you're doing a dental, they're not going to be losing a lot of, you know, like it's not an abdominal procedure. And then the other thing is you use a lot of pre-meds, and I would say use quite a lot of opioids that are very anesthetic sparing. So that means you use less of the inhalant because yep. the inhalants are the ones that cause the trouble. Yes. They're the most cardiovascular, respiratory depressant drugs we have. So they cause a lot of vasodilation. So, But if you give a dog some really good opioids like methadone or something, yeah. or run some fentanyl during the procedure, your vaporizer setting is down at least 50% of what it would have been without giving those opioids. Yeah. Cats, opioids aren't as anesthetic sparing, but they're still helpful. Uh, and so 
it's still good old-fashioned medicine, physical exam and history. Like, so they can still walk around the block. They're not coughing. Their lungs don't sound like they're full of fluid. They can handle anesthesia. Yeah. And some of the murmurs are not necessarily, you know, they're physiological. They're not necessarily functional. And we know from like cats, if you hear a murmur, half the time it means something and half the time it means nothing. And then you listen the next day and it's gone, you know. So, you know, we're kind of got to go with our clinical skills here. And I really think that the benefits, if you do it carefully, of getting an old dog with a heart murmur through a dental outweigh what could be the risks. And we didn't lose a single one of those patients. Yeah. Um, you know, and if you think now, I mean, when I trained, you know, we didn't have the choice of induction agents, you know. And now, you know, we have Alfaxalone, we have Propofol, we can mix it with some Midazolam, which is like super safe, does almost nothing, but drops your doses of the induction agents. You run, you know, like your fentanyl during, maybe if it's a dog, some lidocaine infusions, and your vaporizer's sitting down at half a percent, right. and they're breathing and they've got good blood pressure, and you're watching your fluid rates. And the benefit is... To see those dogs, like, get a new lease of life afterwards. And the owners just can't believe, you know, just the, you know, the sm <laughs> how much nicer they smell. And they hadn't realized that, yeah, they were dropping their food, their mouth was painful, so on. So, yeah, I mean, there's going, some heart diseases are much higher risk, like dilated cardiomyopathy or a dog with aortic stenosis. I mean, these are different things. Those are different. One of my claims to yeah. shame is the first yeah. uh, DCM dog I ever diagnosed, I diagnosed <laughs> during his anesthetic, yep. which was slightly unfortunate. In my defense, it was not a pleasant animal that was trying to eat me conscious yeah. and there was no way I could even hear its heart through yeah. the growling. But yeah, I took it into x-ray its chest because it had a cough that hadn't gone away. It was quite a young animal. Yeah. It's a Belgian shepherd. Okay. And um, took the x-rays and went, oh. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and the other thing is that if you think about it, I personally think like now that we're doing um, more fear-free and low-stress handling, I would say fear, stress, and the, you know, the sort of adrenaline rush or, you know, like everything that's happening to an animal and the vasoconstriction and fear is going to cause way more trouble to a sick heart than anesthesia, to be honest. Yeah. And so I think the combination of, you know, all the sort of things that we do to keep them calmer and, you know, handle them more carefully and gently and take our time and decrease those catecholamines that are induced by stress and fear is going to actually, you know, make a huge difference to the safety of anesthesia. It's massive. Absolutely. I feel like we could talk about anesthesia for a very long time and my brain is filling up. So I hope you guys are taking notes here because this is awesome stuff. Let's segue across to one of your other big loves and let's talk about cats. Mm -hmm. um, so I have I have two cats. I was, grew up with dogs, though. I always consider myself a, a better, more of a dog person or dog vet. I mean, there's such a thing as a dog vet, is there? And used to get eaten alive by cats and then I got a cat. A cat I did not want that was just said it was beat up and it played such good cards. When it came in, it was I rescued it and the nurse, plus it had a broken arm and the nurses put a little, they made a little ping pong ball sort of thing and put it on a cage because they wanted it to, to play. And it was a junior nurse, bless her, and she'd made this thing out of the goodness of her heart. And 
this little kitten was trying with its broken arm to whack the ping pong ball. And that was that. It was like, okay, I'm having this cat. <laughs> it's too nice. Which was actually a total, I was missold because he was a complete psychopath and wasn't sweet at all. But boy, did I learn about cats and yep. the best training course I, I ever, ever did for sure. Particularly, are you lecturing on feline pain here? Yep, already. Yep. That's, that's my, a lot of my research was based on trying to dispel that myth that, you know, opioids make cats crazy. And, yep. you know, so I did a lot of work with looking in a model that we had of nociceptive pain in cats. We looked at all the different opioids, you know, onset, duration, best route of administration and so on. So my PhD when I was at Bristol was to do with horse anesthesia. And it was just a great three years, just like great surgeons helping me out, doing clinical cases and doing my research. You know, and I would take a lot of blood samples because I was looking at biomarkers for stress and, and pain in, in horses. And it was great because, you know, I would just go up to a horse and take out 20 mils and throw it in the freezer and everything. And then I could, if my assay didn't go well, I just got out another, t you know, I had so much. And then the very first project I ever did with cats, you know, you're limited to how much you can get. And I remember the first cat project and I, I remember distinctly saying, okay, this is my first and my last ever cat research project. <laughs> and then... I thought about it again. I went, you know, they're so unique and they're so challenging and we know so little. I mean, this was, you know, 20 years ago. I went like, you know, I'd like to know more about cats. And then, oh, well, the rest is like a lot of my research has been around cats now. Yep. I mean, I think I've learned a lot about cats and they're really unique. Okay. I'm going to open this question up and let you take this whichever way you want to take it because you're the, you're the expert. And when I said, I realized I said, what you're lecturing on here and I didn't say where we actually yeah. are. So we're in Las Vegas, the sun is shining over the desert, the Nevada desert, and we're at Western Veterinary Conference. That's why we're here. We didn't just, you know, fly out two Scottish people to To Vegas. To Vegas <laughs> and roll in the casino. So you're lecturing at Western Veterinary Conference. And the question then it actually is so what are the most important things you've learned about cats? What are the common misconceptions? Let's just bust misconceptions yeah. about cats that are poorly understood but are really important from your years of yeah. research. So I think, you know, when I think of over the years, the number of times I've walked into, you know, a ward or an ICU or whatever, and I've just seen a, a notice on the cat's door and it says, this cat is really nasty and it will bite you. <laughs> Completely misunderstood or aggressive cat is coming in. And I think the biggest mindset you have to switch is the number one cause of aggression for cats in a veterinary clinic is fear. So I think once you make the mindset that they're not out to get you, they're just fearful and they're acting like as they should if they feel threatened. So then once you understand the behavior and get your mindset around, so why are they acting like this? The answer is because they're afraid. So how do we switch this around so they're not afraid of being here and doing yep. what we do. So once you understand that and learn how to handle cats, then, you know, cat bites and cat scratches go down in your clinic much more successful because if they're fearful and then become aggressive, you can't nurse them. And then you can't do good physical exams. Plus when you do, you know, there's a lot of people and students that don't own cats 
who really do think that all cats' heart rates are 200. And until you own a cat and listen to them quietly at home, no one knows that cats can have heart rates of 60. And this is, they're not dying of third degree heart block, right? It's just that in a clinic, you know, everyone assumes that, oh, cats all have heart rates of 200 and it's just not true. So I think um, that's a big misunderstanding. And of course, their metabolism, this whole glucuronidation pathway and, you know, drug companies realizing that we need to develop, you know, drugs that don't depend on that pathway that are more effective for cats. So mostly it's addressing the fear of the veterinary visit would be the number one thing for cats. And and then just for fun, I'm going to throw out some random thing about cats. Oh, please do. We like I'm going that. To, I'm going to, so left and right handedness in humans is based on what? You know, well, America's had mostly their best presidents have all been left-handed, but that's just a you know, and the current one is right-handed. But um, so... I'm, I'm not going to take it too far down that path. No, we're, we're not going down that pathway. From 50% of the listening yeah, audience in America. Yeah, we're not going to down that pathway. But there's just a study that... Super there's a Yeah, there's a study that just came out and it's fascinating because um, as soon as I read it, you know, I have two male cats and one female cat. So in cats whether they're left or right dominated pod, left-handed or pod, I guess, <laughs> pod, is based on their sex. So male cats are predominantly south paws, so left-handed, and female cats are predominantly right-handed or oh, right pod. And that just got published, right? And so if you start, if you start looking at, you know, this how, is like... How did they determine? So they did it on just voluntarily um, movements, like if a cat is asked to walk downstairs, male and female... Left, lead with left, right, and then which side they lay on, and then they did it with um, being challenged. Like if you throw a treat or play with like your cat's ping pong ball, yep. what what paw do they want to swat it with, and what do they predominantly use? And if you're so, a vet in an exam room and you know that yeah, male, male cat, you know, approach from the right, and you're not yeah, going to get swatted yeah. as much. So in cats, and apparently in no other species, whether they're predominantly left or right sided, is sex based. Oh my God, who knew? Who knew? I would never have, who would have known? But that just got published. Yeah. Are there any other interesting applications of that? Like, is that informing? Yeah, well, the other interesting thing is there was some work done on, you know, a lot of cats get uh, limb amputations and often it's yep. the forelimb. And there are actually people that have um, looked at cats and how well they do after amputation. And most of them, you know, the people, 95% of owners say they're glad they had it done and They've got their three-legged cat and he's done well. You know, a lot of kittens in shelters get their a leg off for right, some reason. Right. But now going back to that data, they looked at actually if the cat still tried to cover up the litter, like with its imaginary limb. Oh. And so now if you think about it, a lot of cats that had their limbs amputated, when they watch them, you know, when they've done their business and then they want to cover up, some of them were doing it with the limb that was missing, like you could see it yeah, and still right. thinking about it. So now if they went back, they might see that it was related to whether that was a male or female cat that lost a left or a right leg. And so that, it's kind of interesting. That could be applied to any, not just I mean, yeah. amputations yeah. there, but any, you know, arthritis causes yeah. animals to lose mobility. Yeah. yeah. So it's just a, I just thought I'd throw that out there to bamboozle you I, or just throw I'm, out a random cat. fully cat. bamboozled. Uh, I love that. Yeah, that it's is, just amazing. That's now going to be my go-to Trivial pursuits. Yeah, no, like I feel, I can, I can see it in the pub quiz. Yeah, you know, 
what but who would have who would have guessed but male cat. I think I think that just comes down to the fact that cats never read the book or any book right they don't follow the rules <laughs> that's the one thing that's absolutely certain like they, they never follow the rules that's awesome okay now your background also you know you've done a lot of work with um, shelter work ethics work mm-hmm. with AVMA clearly a very passionate person about the work that you're doing and principled so you mentioned Atul Gawande earlier mm-hmm. and I love him as an author yep um, and the book I was initially you, you mentioned the checklist manifesto but the book I was thinking of when you're talking about you know the low mortality rate in anesthesia it's actually the book complications, complications and the hernia surgery they, they did yep. comparisons there the other thing he mentioned one of his book is the dilemma I'm thinking ethical dilemmas and the dilemma of inexperienced clinicians, taking them from knowing nothing and, and to quote Dr. Sue Ettinger, being dumb as mm-hmm. rocks. I think she was talking about herself yep. there. Not now, Sue. Clearly <laughs> you're not dumb as a rock now. Um, but, you know, when, she, when, when we graduate, that's that's what we are. To being experienced, and of course we have to crack eggs along the way and, mm-hmm. and build that experience up, which means working on live animals so they don't get as good an outcome as if somebody mm-hmm. experienced were placing a catheter and you know it takes a graduate three or four goes whereas an experienced vet can do it with their eyes shut from the other side of the room so what are the big or what are the ethical dilemmas are there any ethical dilemmas out there that are important that we should be talking about in veterinary medicine at the moment you know there's a lot out there the biggest one for me facing coming from the uk to the u.s was the fact that they declaw cats here Yes. You know, so that's a huge, and that is being addressed. And there's a big movement, You're very to, aggressively, a very from aggressive movement to, move. to try and. I mean, basically, they're especially outing it, outing vets, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, it's it needs to be done in the right way. It's just everyone has to understand. It. In America, it's much harder to legislate. You can't just say this is a banned procedure and it's done. It's a very very different how you legislate for things in America yep. compared to the UK and yep. certainly working in organized veterinary medicine when I was with AVMA for welfare, you know, the Europeans can just legislate for welfare and boy, it has to be done, right? We're going to take the pigs out of cage, you know, and the hen and chickens yes. and stuff. Here it's very, very different yep. and it's not done at a federal level. And, you know, there's a lot of, lot of differences there. So there's real recognition that we're doing, again, haven't been questioning why, you know, people thought that they just brought their cat in and it would be neutered, but the declaw was something that just happened at the same time. Yes. And there's good education. And so I think that the whole mindset is changing. I think one of the things that certainly was challenging for me in a sort of tertiary referral practice was, you know, just because we can you know, and we do have the tools to do an awful lot now, but we should really, you know, be stepping back. I think our ability to do things to animals, like I mean, we could talk about, you know, renal transplants and all the things that we can do, radical surgeries and, you know, surgical oncology and chemo, we can do them. But I think our ethical ability to discuss these is not keeping up with our ability to do these procedures. Right. So I think we need to do some simple step back. Like what would this pet want? right? What would they want? And just because we can doesn't mean that we should. And I often found as a support service doing anesthesia that I was ethically challenged a little bit, like we're going to do this case. And I knew in my heart with experience and just knowing it's disease, chances of a good outcome were pretty slim. And the dog was not having a good quality of life at the time. 
So, you know, I, I truly believe, but it's unusual that every clinic should have an ethics committee. Right. So when these dilemmas come up, that they can be discussed in a non-confrontational way, that are we going to do this procedure or, you know, Dr. X, Y, and Z are fairly comfortable doing it. But if one of your nurses doesn't want to be part of it, that should be okay, yeah. right? If it ethically challenges them, there was a recent study amongst U.S. Uh, nurses working in critical care who said that like 18% of them said that they might quit their jobs because of ethical reasons. Because if you think about it, they're carrying out the orders of a surgeon but they're spending most time with the patient and know that knows they see the impact. They see the impact of what the surgeons or surgical oncologist orders are. Right. And to them it became very stressful to enable the orders to be carried out. And I think there's times where I've faced that in veterinary medicine where nurses who are fantastic feel that they really don't think it's the best for that and they should be listened to and in an open discussion. That starts to, you know, when I looked at your career map, you've worked within, uh, you know, some very well-regarded institutions and your journey is not a linear journey in any sense, geographically or, or, <laughs> or career-wise, but it start as you're talking, I start to see the, the dots joining yeah. up there. And one of the questions I was going to ask you was, how, given where you started your career, how on earth did you end up working with Lap of Love? And for those of you that don't know, uh, we probably should explain what Lap, Lap of Love, Love is because it sounds like it might not be a veterinary service. It's a, uh, well, I'll let you explain what Lap yeah, of Love is. Yeah, so Lap of Love is a veterinary hospice service that was actually started by two students that I taught at the University of Florida, Mary Gardner and Danny McVitie, who I believe you've interviewed. Danny's um, been on the podcast. Yeah, Danny has. And they realized that the euthanasia process in clinics isn't always the best it could be. And they had both experienced some not great euthanasias of their own pets. And so they started a, a company that actually provides in-home euthanasia services. So our veterinarians now have over 120 throughout the country and like over 50 locations now. So they actually go to the client's home. And we are finding that veterinarians are referring, you know, their own patients. They're saying, you know, it's, you know, in, you know, it's time for euthanasia, but you should think about having it done at home, but not here. And I would say that the experience reading the testimonials from clients and having had Lap of Love come and euthanize some of my own cats and my husband's, um, how that helped him. He's not a veterinarian. More than going to a clinic, it's very clinical and all the rest of it. Uh, it makes a huge difference for that, what we might want to call the final appointment. And we're also finding that owners are more likely to go back to their regular veterinarian if they haven't had their euthanasia done there. Like if, if Lap of Love did the euthanasia, they're likely to take their new pet back because then it's not associated with this last horrible appointment. Right. So we're getting a huge amount of referrals for that reason. And so that's what we do. And I think Lap of Love is all about quality of life. And we do some hospice cases and, you know, we're not talking about putting animals in auction and drips. We're talking about maintaining quality of life and we push owners monitoring quality of life highly 
And Danny and Mary also have a, a saying that it would be better to euthanize a week too early than a day too late when a pet has really suffered. Or there's a crisis at two in the morning and they're rushing to an emergency room and it's not the nice, quiet at home with the family all around that they had hoped for. And so it's becoming, well, it's an affordable service and it's becoming in a huge demand, huge demand for it. And the question really is, so you're the medical director. Yep. And the question that immediately pops to mind is when you're working in, you know, in a euthanasia centered business, why does a euthanasia centered business need a medical director? So, yeah, well, first of all, when I... Um, what, what does your day-to-day look like? Yeah, what do yeah, you do? Yeah, so Danny and Mary have been trying to get me, you know... I'm being a, slightly mischievous yeah, with that no, question. So, <laughs> so a lot of people that knew that I had been approached and I was thinking about working with Lap of Love, they were like, but you're an anesthesiologist and your whole job is to make sure they wake up, right? <laughs> <laughs> and right. I said, yeah, you're absolutely true. That's been my job for 37 years is that they recover from their anesthetic. And if you think about it, euthanasia is a very specialized type of anesthesia, but it's permanent. But the actual event is um, very, very impactful on the owners. How well it goes can leave a good end for that owner to remember or a terrible, a terrible experience. So my goal is to really, for the sedation that we do, we do it in two steps. We do sedation and then we do the euthanasia. And so we're actually looking at, because we have such a great database and we can collect and we do so many animals, we're looking at better ways to sedate them. Decreasing, like there's no data out there on what all the side effects are, like how many animals have a seizure as they're being euthanized. How many do this? How many do that? That owners don't understand or is alarming to them. And rephrasing, you know, they all think that we're giving something to stop the heart and emphasizing to them, no, the brain is shutting down long before the heart and they're unaware and they're comfortable. So, yeah, it seems like a complete opposite of anesthesia, but it's probably one of the most important anesthetics that an animal ever gets is its euthanasia anesthetic. That's a fascinating way to think about it. It's a complete shift in the way that you approach yep. that appointment. Yeah, and so that, that, quite... that last, you know, 30 minutes that the owners have with their pet can have a huge impact on how they grieve and recover from that loss and how, you know, it can just make a huge difference to them. And I think that's what Lap of Love is is offering. This very, and we don't just do dogs and cats, we do potbelly pigs, we had a request for a rooster, you know, we've had reptiles, they want to do them at home. We um, are really, really willing to work on getting these things as perfect as we can. And then, of course, we are looking after the the owner at the same time. Yeah. We're not human grief counsellors, but we know a lot about owners that lose pets and how they feel. And we know what's normal for other pets in the home because other pets in the home will go through a grieving process. So we understand that now. And so I think we can collect a lot of data and educate everybody about the euthanasia process. Well, it sounds like you're the perfect fit. As it feels... You know, the minute I said yes, and then it's actually my one year anniversary with the company this with this week, there's absolutely no doubt it was the right choice for this last part of my career to focus on this. 
Fantastic. Now, I'm being, I'm, I'm always watching the clock and these yep. conversations <laughs> always go way too fast and I yep. inevitably don't get through half of the questions I would like to. So Sheila, one of the things we do at the end of our interviews is we, we change pace, change gear a little bit and go for a sort of slightly more lighthearted rapid fire questions. And I can tell you now of all the notes I've got of questions to ask you, I've probably gotten through. This is a record actually. I think maybe 10% of what I had intended to ask you, but the, the great, you know, you're sharing such amazing things. It just yeah. seems silly to... What, are you going to ask me if I like iron brew? <laughs> I take that as a absolutely granted yes yes, surely. Like, yes. For, right now we have to do you want to explain what iron brew is or shall i uh, you can but it's um scotland's other national drink and possibly and, the most toxic thing on planet earth yeah and it was made in my hometown falkirk <laughs> i didn't know it was from falkirk yeah. um iron brew scotland there's a little factoid for you so you've shared the the left-handed and right-handed cats i'm going to hit you with something even more highbrow than that that is, Scotland is the only country in the world where Coca-Cola is not the one sell, <laughs> number one selling soft drink. And I think another fact is that Iron Brew is actually banned in certain countries because it's so, of the sugar content, sugar content and <laughs> caffeine content. Yes. It's, it's horrible, but it does taste good. Yep. And it looks like lurid orange. So uh, one of Scotland's greatest exports, you thought whiskey was the one, but yeah. Iron Brew is actually, actually Iron Brew is the tonic to whiskey drinking. <laughs> Too much whiskey drinking the night before, can of Iron Brew, bam, sorry. Yep. <laughs> there we go. This is just, we're, I mean, we've gone from quite highbrow great stuff to I feel like we're now plumbing the depths of my brain and my pop, pop culture <laughs> knowledge. So, so quick fire questions. Now I'll ask, they're shorter form questions. Mm -hmm. You don't have to give short form answers. Okay. Up to you. And we ask a selection of these to all of the guests. So what was the best piece of advice you were ever given or that you have given? Yeah. So my mentor in anesthesia was Jerry Luke. And there's two things he told me. He told me, he said, you know, good surgeons deserve a good anesthetist, but a bad surgeon really needs one. I love that one. <laughs> and that was what Jerry said to me. And I was like, yeah, you're right. And then the other thing he instilled in me, and it's probably my opening sentence to every student that used to come on my rotation, anesthesia is not rocket science. They all think it's about, oh my gosh, pharmacology. I hated pharmacology. I didn't understand it. It's not rocket science. It's about attention to detail. And that's really it. And being very practical and my other advice I give the students is, so treat this animal like it was your own and act as if the owner is watching you all the time. That is brilliant advice for just about everything, I think, in veterinary medicine. Yep. Um, but anesthesia is not rocket science. It's um, practical, you know, just putting things together and thinking more than one step ahead and having more than one plan. And the other thing that Jerry Luke said to me is he said that the skill of a good anesthetist is not making plan A work, but knowing when to switch to plan B. <laughs> He's just a and I just pass those along. Epic gems. I yeah. love it. Now, what was the worst piece of advice you've ever been given? The worst piece of advice I was given was not to think about going to vet school, that I should really try and go to medical school. That was um, when the headmaster at my high school, well, first of all, I was actually going to be a PE teacher, physical education teacher is what I wanted to be. I was okay. very athletic and yep. that's why I'm so like excited about, you know, you know, like 
Glasgow students winning silver medals and, you know, and everything. We had the shout out at the beginning. So that's what I was going to do. And then I came home one day and I just announced to my parents that I was going to be a vet. <laughs> they were like, where did that come from? And they were very supportive and they said, OK. So my dad had connections in Rotary. And so the vet that took me out, the first thing he did was take me to the slaughterhouse to make sure I could handle that. And I was, I'm fine with that. And then the headmaster heard and he said, well, if you've got all the, you know, if you're going to do really well in your, you know, your hires and A-levels and everything, you should go to medical school. And I'm like, but I want to be a vet. Yeah, how am I going to be a vet if I do that? And my parents supported me for that. And so I... You know, I think maybe if I had gone to medical school, I would have ended up being a pediatric anesthetist because that's the closest I can think of to like working on animals. Yep. But um, no, my parents supported me and I went to vet school and I haven't regretted it ever since. Speaking of vet school, if you can take yourself back to your graduation day on Gilmore Hill, <laughs> underneath that amazing old Gothic spire. Yep. If you give yourself one piece of advice that day with everything you know now, what would that advice be? I think it would be stay in touch with your graduating class. You know, I've kept in touch with a few and a lot have gone by the way and then you find out that we've lost them. And it's hard because everybody gets their life busy, you know, they're getting married, they're having kids. You know, for me, I moved to America, you know, or actually went to Canada, went to Switzerland, then Canada, then stayed in America. So it's been a little bit harder. But I think everyone should make the effort to stay in touch with your classmates because everybody's going to go through similar experiences and you want someone that you can confide in and trust and especially with, the, there, I think there's a lot more stressors with new, for on new graduates than there was for me. Oh, I mean, we, I didn't, I didn't graduate with any debt, right? Yep, the way it was right. all done then. So I, I don't have like the American students and now the UK students. So I think you need good professional friends, and then you need f- friends outside of the profession. You know how everyone had a name at Glasgow. I was in the other club. <laughs> The other, the other club, and um, we were the screwing studs. <laughs> we were the other club, but you know, Shout everyone out to my has the fellow screwing yeah. studs out there. And so, you know, so now I would make a much, you know, I would say, yeah, you should try and go to the reunions and and don't be afraid to reach out if you know if you lose a patient or you have a client that you know treats you badly, which is getting more and more common there's someone else in your class has gone through the same thing. So the thing is, and now it's much easier because the young, everyone has social media to keep in touch with, you know, with me, it was the, you know, letters and a telephone. And, um, but that's the other thing, you know, old fashioned letter writing, you know, I still write to my mom. Like she said, this email thing's all very good, but I like your real letters. Nice. (laughs) So no, I think when you graduate that day, you know, with me, it was with, you know, 60 other people, I wish that I had seen all of those 60 other people before we lost them and seen them more often yeah. than I have. Yeah. What was the gender balance of your year? We were getting to about half and half. Yeah. Yep. But that was 1980. And yep. 1998, we were easily 80-20 yep. by that point for me. Yep. Okay. Um, now, that's one of my favorite ones. This is how I, I build my reading list. What's your favorite or most impactful book that you've ever read from a, a personal development point of view? 
I think it's Atal Gawande, like, and out of all of his books, I don't know which one I could say has been impactful on my career, but life. So obviously checklist, yep. um, complications, but better, I think better. I just um, ordered that on I, Amazon. I quote that because he basically says as a surgeon, being better at what we do, it just takes a willingness to try. That's yep. kind of the the whole message of the book. It takes a willingness to try. And he's, he does the whole, it's not rocket science. It's not this. It takes a willingness to try. And I think that is key. And then his other book, which I think has had a huge impact on me working with geriatric animals, but also having aging. Uh, I've lost my father, but my mother's 89. He's got an, a book out called Being Mortal. And it's about looking after the elderly elderly generation and he is originally from India and yep. there it's a very family it's a family process yes and the elders stay with the family until yep. the very end yep. whereas in Europe and America they're often put into you know a home yep. to be looked after yep. and they lose the family connection so that's what that whole book is about it's about having a good life right up until the end and after reading that book, you know, I was like, you know, as an extra bonus as veterinarians or yep. veterinary surgeons, we have now the ability to give the pet a great life up until the very end. But we have the added bonus that doctors don't have or human doctors don't have. We can give them the very best end as well. And that's the euthanasia appointment. So his that book, Being Mortal, completely changed my view on how we should be looking after the elderly and also how I think about my older patients, that they should be enjoying life right up until that last appointment. Are you on social media at all? You're on Twitter so you, you, or you Instagram? You asked me if I was on, what did you ask me, on WhatsApp or Snapchat or something? You asked me and I was like... I definitely didn't you ask you about Snapchat. I'm too old for that. Like, that's like, for the 12-year-olds. And I was I like, no, that. I'm not. <laughs> WhatsApp, I think. So yeah. I have a Twitter account, but I can't remember the last time I was on it. So I'm on, I do Facebook. But for me, Facebook is about posting like funny videos of penguins, which is my <laughs> other favorite favorite animal of all time. Well, I and, was going to ask you, what's, a, yeah, what's a, a quirky thing that people so, don't know about you, yeah, but that matters? You probably just penguins. answered that. I absolutely love anything and anything to do with penguins. The penguins stepping over the, the rope. Yeah. Particularly, that is, that is the best. Yeah. So as a child, Edinburgh Zoo, I don't know if you know, but Edinburgh Zoo at two o'clock every afternoon, if a penguin wants to leave its enclosure, they open the gate and they do the penguin parade. Yep. And I kept saying, I want, I mean, I would go to that every day if I could. <laughs> and they don't, and the thing is they're not, they don't have to do it if they don't want to, right? It's voluntarily and they walk around and they go back in and you get the penguin parade. So, um, penguins. And so, so a little thing I have, like it's bookmarked on my, my computer, wherever I go, when I feel like I need to see home and a penguin, there's a webcam in the penguin enclosure at Edinburgh Zoo that's live. So I can check on the weather in Edinburgh and, you know, and I can look at the penguins and nesting penguin. and see a penguin at the same time. So I watch the live cam, penguin cam Edinburgh Zoo a lot. Um, how, but how, other than Facebook. I'm going to link that up. Yeah. So it's the penguin cam. They have pen, the pen cam, the pen cam, <laughs> but they, you know, they also have the one for the pandas, but the penguin one is much better. So Facebook for me is not for political discussions and, you know, they get hot and oh, bothered. Just for me, it's like putting really funny pictures of cats and penguins 
and keeping in touch with, you know, friends like, you know, if someone just got married and there's nice pictures and stuff. So that's what it is for me. What, what the internet was made for. All yeah. right. So let's imagine yeah. you're in your Twitter account. You can remember your password. <laughs> if, and I, if you could it's leave... It's Sheila what, Scott is my name. Is yeah. my is that the handle? Is you, do you still call yeah, it the handle? you still call it a handle. I think I'm called Absolutely. Sheila Scott. Okay. Uh, so it does. you can tweet, Sheila. If, you, if you've enjoyed this conversation, you should definitely... But I don't remember my password. ...send you a little message and, and say so. But... So let's imagine you're in your Twitter account. If you could send one tweet to the world, and it used to be 140 characters, it's 280 characters. Now you can use, you can get a few more words in there. But if you could broadcast a tweet to the world from Sheila Robertson, what would that tweet be? Oh boy. I think it is that we do need to be nicer to each other. There's enough out there in the world to upset us that, we, that's getting too many characters, isn't it? But we just need to treat everybody that you meet, you don't know their story. And I've learned that. I've gone through some pretty rough things and people don't know your story and you don't know their story. So it's easier to be nice to everybody you meet. I was just thinking going down the Vegas Strip, you know, there's a lot of people obviously falling on bad luck. Even if you sat down and gave them a nice word, I think it would make a huge difference to the entire world. Into their world. I mean, that's too many characters, but Way the, the, basis, characters. the basis is... You're going to need to edit just, that. Just be... Be nice. You, you, just, you don't know anybody's story. And so don't assume anything about them and just be nice to everybody. I love it. Any final thoughts for the audience? I've just sat here absolutely wrapped the whole time. I can't believe how fast this interview has gone. Mm-hmm. Um, have you any final thoughts for the audience? No, I mean, all I can say is I've been really lucky. I think I had a great education at Glasgow. Parents that supported education. I've travelled to a lot of places, you know, to do spay-neuter work. I've been to very poor countries. I've been, you know, in the nicest clinics in the world. I've just been very, very lucky. I've had some health issues, got really lucky with those. And... I still worry about a lot of things. And if you looked at my yearbook, you'd find out that, you know, I was the one that, you know, studied an awful lot. And I don't regret that, but I wish I'd spent a little bit more time down at the pub. (laughs) I was, see, I was definitely not the one that studied too much. I think actually that Danny said it really nicely. Danny McVitie said it really nicely that she was in the, 25% 25% of the class made the top 75% possible. And that's certainly where I lived as well. Yeah. But I got a great education at Glasgow as well. And then I started learning how to be a vet after graduation. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> the, learn- sure. the learning curve the day after, I mean, which my day after literally did. I graduated on a Saturday. My father dropped me off in Warrington and I started work that Monday Wow. On, in the year that parvovirus broke out. So it was baptism by fire. And I learned, like, your learning curve just shoots right up. But I had a supportive team that were willing to help me. And you just got to, everybody's human. And you're more capable than you think. You're really surprised. Like, sometimes you go, I can't believe I pulled it off. And then you go, I did. <laughs> believe in yourself. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Um, Sheila, this is really genuinely just been an absolute joy to have a conversation. I've only just met you 
and I feel like I could talk to you for hours, but it's been genuinely one of my favorite interviews. So thank you so much for your time. I'm really mm-hmm. grateful for it. And thank you for the amazing work you're, you're doing out there, helping us all learn a lot more about how to look after these oldies and improve the oldie, anesthetics. The, the goldie oldies. The goldie the oldies. oldies. The old crusties. So thank you very much for being on the podcast. It's been a joy. And if anyone wants to reach out to you and yep. um, get in touch and say how amazing the podcast was or ask you, pick your your sizable brain about any of the topics we've covered today, where's a good place for them to do that? Definitely you can put out um, my email. So it's drrobertson at lapoflove.com. And that's probably the easiest way to get to me. And we can put that out. And I would say that um, I was kind of thinking this was some kind of, you know, hour long interview, but it's just been like chatting to an old classical friend (laughs) and you're very good at putting people at ease. So I think I've enjoyed it probably more than you have even. (laughs) So it's really been a pleasure and I have no idea who's listening out there, but you know, it's been wonderful talking to you, several, whoever you are. Several thousand people each month. So, yeah. and I think you'll have helped them out greatly. Sheila, thank you so much. I respect your time. I know you've got a lot of stuff to do here at WVC. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. So just me once again, folks, before we sign off, I just want to say thank you to Dr. Sheila. She was amazing. Uh, I felt like I was back in school. I was just so many lessons. I learned so much just sitting with the conversation. I hope you did too. Now, if you're enjoying the show, please do me a favor and leave a review on iTunes. They really go a long way to giving me feedback and to helping us stay high in the rankings. Also, don't forget about Vetex. Go to my website, drdavenickel.com forward slash Vetex graduate and check it out. And if you have any questions or you want to see any guests in future, please drop me a line on Instagram. It's going to be Instagram.com forward slash Dr. Dave Nichol. Until next time, be safe, be well, be happy.